Good morning, and welcome to this edition of Advice Worth Keeping, KPMG's podcast series where we interview firm executives and thought leaders, as well as third-party industry luminaries and experts on important global business trends, topics, and leading practices. My name is Stan LaPique, and I lead global research for KPMG's Management Consulting Services Group. So I'm pleased to have with us here today on this edition of Advice Worth Keeping, Mr. Darren Grzevich. Darren is part of the U.S. firm. He's a managing director in the Cybersecurity Services Group and one of the firm experts on security monitoring services. So, Darren, thank you for joining us here today on Advice Worth Keeping. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor and exciting to get to talk about this particular topic, one that I'm pretty passionate about. I think for our clients, too, it ends up being a very important service or program they get to enable to protect themselves against some of the attacks that we see in the media every day. Right. So certainly it's a very timely topic given what's going on in the market. Obviously, there's been a lot going on relative to cybersecurity, both in the public and private sector. So just to lay out for our listeners, what we're going to talk about today is the current line of thinking on the building of a security monitoring program in general, but also in the context of current events and some of the new threats we're seeing in the market. I think, Darren, you're going to help us understand what to do and and how to do it. So start out, when we think about cybersecurity, The focus seems to be on the prevention of attacks and threats. Given that point, what role should detection play in a cybersecurity program? It's interesting that prevention, obviously, and rightfully so, gets a lot of the attention as people are building a security program or as organizations are thinking about how they prevent attacks from being successful. And so a lot of the focus, especially as a lot of organizations we work with are building a program and are fairly new or in the early stages of that, tend to focus on prevention which is not necessarily the wrong approach, I think, but when we flip that around and say prevention is not 100% effective all the time, and if you ask any security practitioner, they would likely obviously tell you the same, we have to be able to detect the attack or anything that's successful that bypasses those preventative controls. And if we don't have that, we basically set ourselves up for failure in the fact that if 100% prevention is impossible, then at least we have to have the detection Otherwise, the next point in time that you hear about it is generally within the media, law enforcement, or your own customers or clients reaching back out to you, letting you know that you've lost their data, which is always the worst position to find yourself in. When clients think about their ability to improve their capabilities to detect threats, what are some of the things they really should be thinking about in terms of improving those capabilities? So as you described, they're not called out in the press because their detection either was too late or once they detected it, they weren't forthcoming enough about that detection. What are some of the key things clients should be doing there, both to do it well, but also to kind of manage the whole detection process? Just to take one step back to prevention and some of the basic things that should be in place at many organizations, and and this is something that we come up against where they're lacking, and the lack on the prevention side or some of these supporting programs and services definitely has an impact on how effective the monitoring function is ultimately going to be. And so if I take one step back to prevention and some of the more basic controls, and again, this leads us back to your opening comments around some of the recent breaches. If you look at those, they generally always had two things in common. First was failed prevention of the attack, which is obvious because it was successful and ended up in the media. And then the second piece, which is where detection comes into play, is there was a long period of time between the attack and the success of that attack and the detection of that attack. In many instances, we've seen that the detection of the attack is months, if not years down the road, 
at which point it becomes fairly difficult to figure out what actually happened and what that organization potentially lost as a part of that successful attack or breach. And so if you just go back to some of the basic hygiene and the basic controls that organizations should have in place, but may be lacking. So some just to think about with vulnerability management, patching configuration management. So identification of systems that are out there in the environment operating and vulnerable, as we saw in some of the more recent attacks here, had been vulnerable for a period of time. That was leveraged by the attackers to gain their initial entry point into the organization, which leads us into patch and configuration management. So it's not only identification of the vulnerability on those systems, but how do you address that? The patch that needs to be applied or the configuration that needs to be changed to move that system from a vulnerable to non-vulnerable state. The other piece of this too for us, and it goes back to access management and identity and access management, but it's management of the users in general, the life cycle from their onboarding to their change in position within the organization to their decommissioning of their access in their account. So that entire life cycle, it's very important. Although we tend to think of identity and access management as an IT problem, it has a direct impact in security or for our security programs as a whole. In addition to the authentication mechanisms that these users are using to access potentially sensitive applications, data stores, and so on. Thinking through the management of the users, you know, another point that I see with a lot of clients, and I think we've seen this play out in some of the more recent breaches, has been issues around data management. And so the ability to manage the data, to understand when you actually need that data, should you be keeping that data, and if not, do you have the correct decommissioning or disruption policies for that data? I'd probably be guilty of it myself as you think about the size of hard drives expanding exponentially over the last 10 years. We tend to accumulate data. We store it all because we have the capability now to store it, but we don't think about, do we really need it? How are we using it? And if we're not, we should decommission it. Again, limiting the amount of data that an attacker would have access to during a successful attack is one of those other keys that we see that's sometimes missing. And then also, and I don't want to wholly pick on the information security function or team, but I think there's some other IT operational capabilities that help set the foundation for a lot of these programs. And just a couple just off the top, asset management. So understanding where your assets are, what they do for the organization, how sensitive they are, and who owns them. All that becomes important in vulnerability patch, configuration management, prevention to ensure the right controls are in place, but also detection. So how do we react to a successful attack? And do we know who owns the asset? Time is of the essence in in our ability to respond to incidents. And that's the piece that's most interesting is that a lot of those basic controls on even just the preventative side have been missing. Now, I was thinking about this in talking to the organizations as well and just thinking through my own past. In a lot of my conversations with clients today, we talk about not foregoing building your detective capabilities or your security monitoring program and focusing solely on prevention, an opportunity to build those programs in parallel. And if you think I need to get to prevention as best I can first, and then I'll focus on the security monitoring program, that's probably not the right approach. And I thought about my own past where I made this mistake myself in building a security program. And I took the approach that I said you shouldn't take, to be quite honest, and this is my mistake was focused a lot on the preventative controls and a lot on those foundational basic controls that I mentioned earlier. And we really wasn't thinking about the detective side as much. And when we started spinning that program up, I went to lunch with a friend of mine and he had mentioned, hey, it sounds like you guys did some really good stuff on the preventative side. How do you sleep at night though? I mean, what if something happens? And I said, no, I sleep really well. I sleep really well because if something happened, I don't know. It's when I get that security monitoring program in place and I'm detecting the attacks and I'm responding to those attacks that I won't sleep well at night because I know I have the ability to detect that. It's today, it's fine. But tomorrow, I'm opening my eyes to something that I was blind to before and I shouldn't have been. So it's kind of one of the basic pieces of advice that we tend to give our clients and organizations that we work with as they're building their program. I think that's a great piece of advice. So you've identified a lot of the the faults that organizations are facing today in addressing both 
prevention and detection. So a two-part question. From an organizational standpoint, are there different things that firms should be doing? I mean, should there be a center of excellence, so to speak, around security and detection and prevention and cybersecurity? Because I think a lot of organizations, when they identify a big challenge, they create a center of excellence, which is good, I guess, from an attention standpoint, but also could be redundant with other groups within the organization that are already addressing this. From an organizational standpoint, do you think the way firms are structured today is the best way to address some of these challenges, or should there be some changes in the structure and who's on point for what and how that's organized? So getting into organizational alignment and what the team looks like, there are some guiding principles that we would put around that. But to be quite honest, if we look at most organizations or the organizations that we work with, what we see is there's not a one-size-fits-all model. Organizational alignment is sometimes you know, politically driven. It's sometimes geographically driven, especially if you talk about a large global organization with a presence in the U.S. and a uh, presence in the EU or Asia-Pacific region. Again, a lot of that's driven by corporate culture, a little bit of politics, a little bit of geography, and a little bit of where the skill and the capability lies within the organization, as well as center of mass of where a lot of their assets and IT resources happen to sit. If I work with an organization that's very U.S.-centric with a lot of IT assets here, with IT operations within the United States, but may have still a global footprint or a global presence, we may work with that organization to talk about organizational alignment as we build these programs, making more sense to have that in the U.S. And then even lines of reporting, it becomes interesting as to where the security monitoring function, the SOC, the response function, where that sits within the organization. The one guiding principle I would share on that is we don't look at it as The SOC is reporting to the chief information security officer who's reporting to the CIO who's eventually reporting to the board or the CEO or CEO. What we like to do is even if that organizational alignment exists or those lines of reporting exist, it's making sure that the SOC has a very well-defined mission first and second to be able to exercise or influence how things are responded to, how they're detected, what type of support they get from various other teams within the security function or even just the IT function in general. And so that influences the lines of reporting where they might not have the right level of influence within the organization. And if they don't get that in their current form, in their current organizational structure, because of the current lines of reporting, we build a roadmap for an organization. That's one of the things we look at is where does it sit within the organization? Does it have the right level of influence or ability to make change within the organization? And then is this very politically driven conversation where they really need us or an outside resource to come in and say, this makes the function as a whole work better? So if an organization has addressed some of the typical pitfalls and developed a roadmap to address them, if they've got their organizational structure aligned, how do they know how good they're doing? How do you measure maturity in respect to the capabilities you've just been describing? In general, how do you measure maturity? And is there a way that they can understand, are they good? Are they great? How do they match up to their peers? Or is that going to be very dependent upon their organization and their situation? So what are some success metrics And how do you know, once you measure those metrics, if you're doing well enough? I think it goes back to one of those old adages where you can't improve what you don't measure. And we do find that to be a fairly pervasive problem in many cyber organizations and many information security teams, even at our clients, where you talk about how do you measure the effectiveness of the program, and you really have to take that from two perspectives. You know, first, the operational efficiency or effectiveness. So we've set out a mission to operate at a certain level. And in the security operations world or security monitoring side of the house, you really start thinking about the times to do things and successful versus failed detection. So things from time to detect to time to respond to time to remediate or contain. 
how many things do we detect? How many things actually made it through that we should have detected that we didn't? So we had a failed detection. What is that rate? Things of that nature are always important from an operational effectiveness side. How does that turn into a key risk indicator? And that really goes back to one of your earlier questions around building the program and what's the right approach to take when you do that. Our philosophy in that space, which kind of leads me into how do you monitor your effectiveness, is think about the threat. A lot of programs that we work with, whether it's building it from the foundational layers or we're doing a renovation project where there's a security operations center in place, but maybe it's not operating as effectively as it could be so that we've been asked to come in and take a look at that. Or even, hey, we have something that we think is fairly mature and we're looking at some of the more advanced capabilities, what should we start with? No matter what type of program we're talking about there, we always say start with a threat. So you think about it from the threat perspective. What threat actors and groups are likely to impact or target my organization? What risk do they present to us? And I think that's an important question to answer right off the bat because that drives the conversation around now that we're concerned about certain types of threat actors or threat groups that exist and operate, we think about how they actually operate. So how are they likely to target us? How do they deliver? How do they exploit our systems? How do they move around laterally within our organization? And how are they likely to exfiltrate the data? And what data are they likely trying to exfiltrate from us? What's of value to that particular group? And that really changes group to group. There's an interesting dynamic there with the various threat actor groups that exist and even subgroups within those threat actor groups or categories. So there's an interesting dynamic in uh, you know, how they target you and how that changes over time and how they operate. If we think about how those guys operate, how the threat actors operate, how we transition that into detection. So first, how do you prevent them? Going back to preventative being key, right? How do you prevent that attack from being successful? And if you're not, how would you detect their activity in your environment? So what we call that is our threat assessment or threat profile for an organization. Understanding we may start with that as a point-in-time exercise, that ultimately needs to be updated over time. So that's really a function of one of the groups within the Security Operations Center and more or less the security intelligence function that should be taking that threat assessment and updating that threat assessment or that threat profile as conditions change. So as new attacks, new techniques are introduced, new subgroups or offshoots of some of the larger category groups are spun up, again, going through that process of understanding what risk they actually present. That really drives you to what you should monitor for. And for our cases, we call those use cases. A use case isn't simply, if you think of the old SIM technologies, it's not a check the box, this is what we can monitor for. A use case has been enabled. For us, it's more broad than that. It's the full life cycle of detection through response or remediation. So if you think about these as playbooks that help ensure that you have a consistent approach in response to attacks that are detected. So it's, it's not an ad hoc, it's not a depends who the analyst is that's responding to it, it's a very well-formulated plan and workflow that they can work through. It has to include, what are you monitoring for? Where in the attack lifecycle does that sit? And if you think about it from the objectives of the attacker themselves, so what are they actually after? It should also include the machine data, the log data, other information points that are going to be required to both trigger the detection of that particular event, but also how do you investigate it? That's one thing, again, going back to pitfalls that we see a lot of organizations not think through. They think about how do you trigger this event when it's occurring versus how do you then investigate it to make sure that it is not a false positive? What does it impact? How does it impact our organization? And you find a lot of organizations that go through that process of only looking at the trigger side of things and saying, well, now we've got all these other sources of data that we're not pulling into any type of centralized platform, and our analyst has 10 browser tabs open because they need to access all these different systems to gain the data that they need to make an informed decision about how to respond to that alert. Another pitfall that we see is the SOC is really driven by technology. So security operations center folks, cybersecurity people in general, 
we all love technology, right? We wouldn't be in this industry if we weren't excited at, in some form uh, about technology. But I think for some organizations, that's really blinded us to building the plan around the security operations center, going through that threat assessment or threat profile, as I mentioned, building out our use cases. So this is what we should monitor for and what's of the highest value to our organization. Not what we can do easily, but what should we be doing? That ultimately leads us down into technology purchasing decision. But that's the right process or that's the right flow, in my opinion, for someone to follow. It shouldn't be technology-driven, whereas we have a SOC, we purchase a technology, and now we're hamstrung by the limitations of that particular technology versus taking it the other approach in the process from the threat down to the use cases to drive the functional requirements for the technology to the technology purchasing decisions. So maybe playing off that and to wrap up there, and last question, what's the role, if any, of digital labor when it comes to security operations centers? Obviously, digital labor, robotics, process automation, artificial intelligence is the legitimate shiny new toy within organizations. But when you talk about technology investments and there's always a cost benefit there and there's always a cost constraint, where do you see digital labor playing in to help improve the capabilities of a security operations center, but also perhaps in a more automated fashion, address some of the challenges firms might have in being able to put together adequate budgets for investment? You know, I think cybersecurity practitioners as a whole take a pretty conservative view, at least at this point, on artificial intelligence and its value or benefit to some of the services that we provide. I think some of that might be protectionist in the terms of, you know, you want to maintain job security. It's related to wanting to protect what's yours without having some technology basically usurp that or take over for you. And I think that's probably the wrong view to take. We need as much help as we can get. And if you think about it, again, back from the threat actors and their focus and how they operate, they've become better at automation than we've become at automation. And they don't have to try very hard. We haven't really pushed the envelope with the attackers to try to slow them down through automating our own processes, especially as it comes to detection and response. They've always had to stay, and it's very easy and pretty cost-effective for them to move into slightly automated methods and modes and still outpace our ability to detect and respond to those attacks. And so where I think digital labor is going to play out, at least in the short term in the Security Operations Center or monitoring program, is going to be around the ability to automate the manual tasks that our analysts do today. And I want to be clear, one thing I would absolutely not advise is you can't get rid of your analysts and replace them with a robot. But what you can do is use some of that automation to enhance the effectiveness of the analysts that you do have. Their time shouldn't be spent on rudimentary tasks that we can automate. So we're seeing a big uptick in not only the discussion around how do we automate some of the manual work that we do today, how do we make the SOC more effective through automation and orchestration of all the security technologies that we've already deployed? So how do we get those technologies to work together in concert? The discussion really is around automation, removal of manual tasks of the analyst or for the analyst, making them more effective in addition to connecting all of those various technologies or disparate security technologies that are out there can take this from two perspectives. It could be on the investigative side or the containment remediation side. So if you just imagine an alert pops up on a council, a SOC analyst has to look at that alert. That, depending on the workflow and depending on the level of detail in the alert as it's generated by that source system or the SIM or some other technology, could be limited. A prime example would be I have an external system to the organization and an internal system to the organization implicated in an attack. And I likely have dozens of questions about both of those implicated systems. If you look at lack of automation in just the investigative space, 
again, that goes back to the analyst having 10 tabs open in a browser window in 10 disparate systems trying to pull data to make that informed decision on the attack. So is it really an attack? Is it a false positive? And if it's a real attack, how serious is it? And what else is impacted potentially? And again, that's kind of a short-sighted view, especially on response too. If you think about just that one system, and now that you've determined it is a true attack against that system or a successful attack against that system, your next likely question is, what other systems in the organization had potentially gone through the same thing? And what would happen in a large stock, if you think about it that way, would be you might have multiple analysts. They have a queue of tickets, for lack of a better term. The analyst is taking those tickets one at a time. If you have analyst A takes the first ticket, analyst B takes the second ticket, yet those two are actually related, you may miss that because they're both going to run the investigation on their own in a silo. What we're looking for in orchestration is the ability to then expand that out through investigation and automation. So how can we sweep an environment once we know that we have something that's successful and put all of those successful attacks that are related likely to the same attack together? It's a really simple scenario. Three years prior, I'd say the technology to support that from a vendor perspective probably didn't exist, but we're seeing a change in that market where vendors are hearing the pain of the SOC analysts and the manual processes that they go through. And so they're building technologies to help support that from a vendor perspective. Likewise, on the other side, as we talk about the workflow of a use case, we're seeing other technology vendors step up to the plate and add some value around how do we enable a system Side of a standard ticketing system that we used to use back in the day, how do we actually add a system that allows an organization to take that use case, to take that workflow or playbook and put that into a system that we can track and manage as well as measure? And that goes back to your earlier comment around how do you measure the effectiveness and especially in the operational effectiveness side. If you don't have the workflow in a centralized system, it becomes very difficult to track those times. It becomes very difficult to track average time to response, detections versus misdetections or successful attacks. Very good point. I think particularly on the role that digital labor can play, I think there's a lot of perceptions in the market that it replaces human labor, but I think you articulated well how it really is a complement and addresses some of the more mundane tasks so the human labor can perform the more insightful and strategic activities. I think certainly in some areas, digital labor might fully replace a job, but I think as you articulated in the security space, it's really a complement and something that could augment the security professionals so they can do the things you just described. So I think that's a good way to look at it in the context of a more complicated and strategic area such as cybersecurity. Darren, this has been great today. We'll have to get you back again to talk more on some of these topics, maybe get to the next level of detail overall, but also maybe on where you see digital labor fitting in longer term and what are some of the things people should still be doing and where should digital labor get more involved. Thank you very much for your time here today. Thanks for having me. And you can find the links to the items you referenced in the show today below the podcast. If you're online, of course, the URL for that is kpmg.com slash US slash podcast. That's a wrap. Thanks for your participation.